feel like I want to follow that. I will suffer by comparison. Thanks for that. That was beautiful. If you brought your Bibles this morning, I want you to open up to two passages of Scripture with me. As we continue this journey and looking at the biblical doctrine of faith, trying to ask as many practical questions as we can, turn first of all to John chapter 15. John chapter 15, a very familiar passage, I think. While you've got that opened up too, you would also turn back to James chapter 2 as well. We've been trying to ask ourselves this weekend exactly what we mean when we say that we believe something. And we're trying to answer that question without using a version of the word belief in our answer. (laughs) What does it mean to believe? Well, you know it means to trust something. Well, that's the same thing as believing. Well, you know believing, you just, you believe. (laughs) Really, can we do better than this? Does the Bible give us descriptions? And the answer is, it gives us wonderful descriptions. Friday night, we began to look and realize that Uh, Faith is not this idea of sort of getting God to do what you want him to do, but rather it's faith in God. We looked Saturday morning at this idea of the relationship between faith and our thinking. That is, how do I understand, do I need to check my brain at the door when I become a Christian? Last night we looked at the question of how the posture of faith, uh, where the posture of faith puts us in a a place of humility and dependence upon Jesus. And then this morning in Sunday school we tried to unlock This simple idea that our faith is very much tied to the activity of our imaginations. That's the primary place where God works out our uh, thinking about Him. What I want to deal with this morning is another fundamental question of the question of change. How is it that I understand the relationship of faith to my life being different on the other side of it? So in consideration of that question, turn with me to John 15 verses 1 through 6. Then I'll flip over to James 2, verses 14 through 26. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Turn with me to James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. James asked this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. 
Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is God's word for us this morning. We finished last night by saying that faith, the essence of faith, is, is not looking to yourself, but rather a looking to Jesus. But I want to ask this morning, what do we mean when we say we're going to look to someone or to something? And to illustrate that, I want to ask you a sort of a hypothetical question. I want you to imagine for a moment that God forbid you are involved in a tragic accident on the way home from church this morning. An accident so, so drastic that you find yourself in the hospital, unable to take care of yourself. The doctors can keep you alive, but in order to do so, they have to replace your life intake apparatus, namely your mouth and your stomach. They aren't working. And so what they will do is they will attach a needle into you that goes directly into your bloodstream. And as long as that needle is connected to life-giving fluids, you will survive. You will continue to live. But of course, if you happen to replace that life-giving fluids with, let's say, a bag of motor oil or something like that, what will happen to you? <laughs> you will experience dysfunction. Well, what I've been trying to appeal to you this weekend is that faith is the activity of that intravenous needle working in the arm of a patient. That is, you are equipped with a mechanism inside of you from which you draw meaning, from which you draw security, from which you draw significance. In other words, it's not so much whether or not you are in possession of a spiritual IV, if you will, but the question of what your spiritual IV is hooked up to, with apologies to the English teachers in the rooms for ending a sentence in a preposition. It just works that way. But if you can understand this point, you'll, go, you'll, you'll be long on your way to understanding why we get the information that we do about the relationship between our believing and our changing. I don't think there's a more fundamental question that we ask as human beings than the question, how is it that I go about changing the stuff in my life that I don't like? You ever wrestled with that question? I don't want to be the way that I am in certain areas, and I want to change. I want to become someone different. How do I do that? And the Bible's answer is profound to that. But oftentimes, we get very distracted by wrong ways of looking at change. I've, I heard Tim Keller one time say there are three ways in which we look at change in a wrong way. The first is what he calls the mechanical view of change. This particular idea assumes that becoming a different person 
is just following the right multi-step process. You ever been involved in this? Three easy steps to improving your life. Five essentials to exploding your business. Nine easy ways for you to have a completely new outlook on your marriage. And we love these things, don't we? As if the process of change could be distilled down to a very easily identifiable, easily outlined outline, right? That we could post on our refrigerator or something like that. Diet programs thrive on this kind of mentality, the mechanistic approach to change. Secondly, though, we have what Keller calls the moralistic approach to change. In other words, these are people that look and say, change is about my willpower. That is, when I see myself in a self-destructive pattern where I'm not meeting my goals, what I really need is, is to adopt a new set of rules and to remind myself of the rules, to keep the rules ever in front of me, hoping that, that I will unconsciously, as, after adopting these new rules, change because of the sincerity of my desire to do as much. The moralistic view of change. Thirdly, he identifies what he calls the mystical view of change. Mechanistic, moralistic, and mystical view of change. These are the people who sort of assume that change happens when sort of God sort of sweeps in over you. That is, there's this strange feeling, this strange impression that comes over that uh, all of a sudden change just happened to me. I was going along in one direction and boom, something took over me and I was just different. I know for a lot of people, they actually reflect upon this kind of change as being um, representative of their, of their early life. I, for one, have always struggled with that because I always struggle to wait. Am I supposed to wait for change to happen from a power from the outside? Look, I simply want to pitch to you this morning that what all of those approaches to change, whether they be mechanical or moralistic or mystical, what they all have in common is that they are relying upon outside forces to bring about a change in behavior. And I would submit to you this morning that Jesus wants to do it differently. And you see that exhibited to us so beautifully in John chapter 15, when he gives us this image of a vine and a branch coming off of that vine. Because change is often, we oftentimes want for change in our lives to be coerced from the outside. That is, there was something that could be manipulated in me to make me different. But Jesus is saying, that's not the way that I want to relate to my people. Rather, what I want to do is give you a whole different approach that instead of being sort of manipulated by something outside of you, I want to sort of place inside of your hearts a brand new internal dynamic, if you will. Something that's functioning inside of you that'll put a new principle in your soul so that from it you can see real, lasting, long change. Let me see if I can illustrate this in the area of marriage. My doubt is, that my guess is, that uh, no doubt, if you've been married for a long time or you know other people who have been married, that you've seen people come to great struggles in their marriage where they suddenly stop and say, we're having a hard time. And I've seen in numerous occasions where one or the other partner will all of a sudden be some, realize that their partner is not very satisfied in the marriage. And the red flags start to get raised. And it usually comes along the lines of, I'm leaving you. And all of a sudden there's a panic. And there's a race to go in to speak to the counselors. 
And let's pick on the husbands for a moment. Let's say the husband was the oblivious one, right? As we often are, ladies. We apologize. But let's say the husband was the one who didn't understand and had no idea this was going on. But all of a sudden his wife looks and says, I'm wanting to leave. I'm wanting to get out. And so there in the counseling room we find that there's a brand new fear that's placed in the midst of it. And the counselor begins to talk and looks and says, don't you realize that you're about to lose your wife? You're about to lose your family. Drastic things are going to happen. And in the midst of that pain and that fear and that struggle, something happens inside of that man. He looks and says, I've got to change. I've got to take on new actions. And interestingly enough, he does. He pays attention. He looks and he's motivated to behave in different ways. Maybe he comes home a little earlier from work. Maybe he takes a new engaged interest in the child. But how long does it take before the old habits very slowly, almost imperceptibly start to creep back in? And oftentimes couples can find themselves back in the exact same very frustrating place that they did before. Now here's my question to you. Why? Why does that happen? Why does it happen to all of us? I want to suggest to you because the reason for change that was given to that man in the hypothetical story was because the only reason that he had to change was the external fear that something bad might happen. There was no internal change that came from the inside out that brought about a difference. What Jesus is saying is, is I do not want you to relate to me in the way in which I hear so many Christian students relating to God. In talking with students about their relationship to God and the idea of change, how often will I hear them sort of say to me, or I can hear them sort of relating to God as if God is the great fear monger hung over them, hanging over them with a giant middle, little finger wagging at them saying, you better be careful for what you do next. Because if you step out of line, our relationship might be threatened. And students will reflect that, yes, indeed, this is how God is supposed to relate to me, as a threat to me of doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And if I don't, I'm threatened from it. Is that the way we relate to God? Look, John chapter 15 is trying to give us an entirely different way of looking at this and saying, look, to set Jesus, simply as a judge over your actions, is to assume that fear will change you, but it won't be lasting change. What I want to do is I want to plant something deeper. I want to put something in the internal place of your heart. John Newton, the man who wrote uh, the book, uh, the, the song uh, Amazing Grace, has a wonderful collection of letters, and you must, this is must reading for people who go to church. John Newton's letters. In one of the early letters of the, at least the Banner of Truth edition of this book, um, Newton talks about typical religious conversions and the experience that people have. And he says it happens early on when someone decides that they have sort of gotten away from God. They decide they want to come back. And so what they do is they begin to put on a lot of service and a lot of busyness for Jesus. They get active. They go to a Bible study. They join a prayer group. They, they, they redouble their efforts to read their Bible. All, interestingly enough, wonderful things in and of themselves. But they begin in their desire to get back with God by focusing on those things rather than trying to focus on what it would look like to have a friendship with Jesus, to walk with Him, to commune with Him, to draw love off of Him. 
So that when the Christian comes in and begins to embrace salvation by grace, it's very difficult in the midst of their religious busyness to suddenly make a little bit of a switch. Newton says, ere long things change. Whereas before, at the initial places of my conversion, when I came to Christ with a simple posture of gratitude, where I look to Christ saying, I am a helpless, hopeless sinner, and you are my only hope for salvation. I was drawing love off of Christ. But you gave me a little bit of time after getting busy, and I suddenly begin that I'm no longer drawing off of his love, but I am inferring his love on the basis of my actions. Do you see the difference? It is one thing to look and say, I am drawing off of Jesus' love for a helpless, hopeless sinner. It is an entirely different religion itself to suddenly think that because I am doing these things, I now have his love and affection. And Newton says how easy we slip back. And the moment that we begin to slip back from, infer, from a drawing off of Jesus' love to inferring his love on the basis of our actions, guess what? You don't change. I'm also always fascinated by my wife and I's uh, courtship. Um, uh, when, I was, when Ginger and I were, were dating, uh, Meredith got to be there for the whole, for the whole thing, unfortunately. Um, was my wife's former roommate here on the second row. It's a little intimidating. But I was fascinated by my own behavior when I finally met the woman that would be my wife. Because I needed, interestingly enough at that time, very little instruction. There were a few people that had to sit down with me and say, Les, I'm so glad that you've met someone special. You need to know some rules here, right? Uh, first of all, you need to make sure that you keep in contact with her and call her on a regular basis, okay? Second thing you need to do, you make certain that when you talk to her, you make eye contact and, and stare into her beautiful blue eyes, okay? Make sure you do that. Also, it might be appropriate that during holiday season, you find her gifts and uh, make sure you do that. As if, if you looked at someone who needed that list, you would look and say, well, yeah, <laughs> I'm in love with her. You don't understand, like, I don't necessarily need a new list of rules for those things. It's strange, they're kind of coming up and out of me quite naturally, or what I might say, organically. My friends, what if Jesus is simply saying, I would like to relate to you kind of in that way. That you might find extending from me affection that would actually draw out change by an internal dynamic rather than sort of the pride-centered view of change that makes it really all about you. In other words, Jesus would like to have a relationship with us that is like unto the relationship that a branch has to a vine. What is that relationship like? The branch draws its life, its life-giving sap. <laughs> the reason why the branch is able, if you will, to get up in the morning is because there is energy that is drawn from the vine. And Jesus is saying, I would like for you to be internally connected to me. Now look, I hope that you're realizing that there are very sobering realizations that come from this. Because it is very possible, and I think this is what the James passage is about as we turn to James uh, to look more into this. It is entirely possible for us to be engaged in all kinds of religious activity 
when the activity itself is nothing more than just a personal neuroses and not a real change that comes from seeing Jesus in a way in which we never saw him. But if you can understand this dynamic, that God has equipped us all with an IV that really is sort of cast in us like through our imaginations, like we talked about in Sunday school this morning, that we need to look what it is that we are hooked up to. Now we can understand what James says a whole lot easier. In the James passage of chapter 2, you see James saying things that don't sound right if you've been reading the Apostle Paul. You know, Paul is such a big advocate of saying faith alone in Christ alone is the only thing that can save us. And all of a sudden in James chapter 2, he starts talking about works having saved us. And a lot of people have sort of pitted James against Paul. So much so that at the very beginning of his ministry, he grew to understand, like I'll demonstrate in a second, that Martin Luther thought that James didn't even belong in the New Testament. <laughs> Let's just throw that one out because we don't know how it fits. That was early on in his immature days. We all said silly things when we were younger. We look and say, well, Paul was a faith man. James was a works man. Which is it less? Well, but now I hope you understand that if you picture faith as simply being a mental assent to something, why, yes, I agree that there was a Jesus from, oh, 2,000 years ago and he died on a cross and you, preacher boy, are telling me that that was for my sins and so, sure, I agree to that. James looks at you and says, congratulations, you have now made it to the level of a demon. Even the demons understand that that information is true and they tremble at it. What's the difference? The difference is, is that is an entirely superficial view of faith. And James is saying, no, no, no. Faith is reconnecting this spiritual IV from whatever it was that used to define your identity into the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And guess what? You can't do that and not change. You would question whether or not there really was love in my heart for Ginger if I walked around and continued to do the things that I did before I was married. You see, Les, when you fall in love, it just kind of happens that you start to do stuff on behalf of another person. My friends, is there in us an internal dynamic? And James speaks to us in the most vivid of ways. Why are you doing what you're doing? Has it produced fruit? Jesus says there's two kinds of branches. There are some that are connected to the vine. And you want to know how to know that they're connected? They produce fruit. There's fruit that comes from them. The ones that are not producing fruit are actually kind of worthless. And to be honest with you, they're only useful for building fires. Look, y'all, James is simply saying to us, faith has got to be attached to the most life-giving aspects of our personality. And he says, one of the ways in which you're going to know that you're able to sort of do that is it's going to produce fruit. Now, bear with me for a moment. I know that in religious contexts like that, when we hear that word fruit, a lot of us panic. Because our first thought is, you know, he was so right this morning. I should read my Bible more often. He is so right. There ought to be the fruit of prayer that's coming out of my life. And here's, here's the truth. Both of those things are true. The food of the word and the conversation of prayer are the activities of faith. But James actually identifies something quite different. Notice what he says there at the beginning of uh, the verses that we read in verse 15. He looks in verse 14, he says, If someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? 
And we think of works as going to church, reading our Bible. But that's not what James is talking about. Look at verse 15. If a brother is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food. I find this interesting. James says that the works that you will know that are producing faith are going to have something to do with the way you view the poor. That is, there is something peculiar about what we call the ministries of mercy in our community, in our families, and among each other that is directly tied to faith. Now, do you find that to be curious? Why is that? To be honest with you, most of us, when we drive past poor people, we think to ourselves, well, you know, if you just had a little more discipline. I mean, the truth is, if they would just go get a job, I mean, they could work somewhere. Well, I mean, I've overcome my fears in life. And what we do around whenever we come into the context of poverty is we well up with condescension. And James is the great arrester of that thought. He stops and looks at you and says, uh-uh. Remember what we talked about last night. Your spiritual poverty as a person who lives in rebellion to God's law is supposed to make us kind of, kind of get poor people. A poor person looks and says, I've tried to put my life back together, but my demons keep haunting me. You as a Christian can't say that you don't relate to that? Do you not look and say, to be honest with you, there are things in my life that I've been trying to conquer for years and I still end up wading through them. And all of a sudden, our perspective we look changes when we look at a poor person. And we look and say, you know what, I need to help you. Because I have a God who condescended to my poverty and met me in a place of my helplessness. And you know what, he's been putting up with me for years. And so James says, you want to know if this faith is really working in you? Test your attitudes to the poor, to the brokenhearted, to the ones who keep messing up their lives no matter how many times you invest in them. I had a minister years ago <laughs> look at me while I was complaining about that student. Now bear with me, two of my students are in this congregation right here. And Elizabeth didn't want me to call her out, but since I called out Kelly yesterday, I'll call out Elizabeth. There's two of my students here, so bear with me. Present company excluded. But every now and then you'll get a student in your congregation that you think to yourself, I don't know if I have any more patience to give to this individual. They try one's patience. They are what we refer to in ministry as impossible people. Doesn't matter how much time you spend with them. Doesn't matter how much you do for them. They are constantly never acknowledging you for the grace that you give to them. And I had an old minister look at me and say, yes, don't we thank God for impossible people? And I thought to myself, no, I never thank God for impossible people. Why? Because he says, Les, don't you understand that when you have somebody in your life who never says thank you for the things that you give to them, who never actually acknowledges how much, how much effort you extend in their life, who honestly sometimes never pays you back for the grace that you give to them, until less you learn to relate to a person like that, you will never know what it's like for God to relate to you. Whew. And all of a sudden, the rug of my condescension gets pulled right out from under me. And I realize that the reason why I have not been believing, biblically speaking, is because I have still been resting my salvation upon me 
It has been works, salvation, that has kept me from changing and has kept me from looking at the poverty-stricken and the downhardened and the sin-sick and saying, I get you. (laughs) I understand you. Come along and let me help. It's because we begin to see something different. All right, look. Let's hold there for just a second and go back to John 15. I don't know about you, but Jesus talks about a certain cross-section of people that are going to be cut off and burned. Unproductive Christians who are unproductive nominal Christians, who are Christians in name only, who will be cast out and burned. And I'll be honest with you, whenever I consider passages like James, to be quite frank with you, I feel pretty unproductive. But here's the beauty of the message here. Because in Christianity, we see that on the cross, Jesus was cut off from his Father. Anybody feeling unproductive here this morning? Do you see Jesus looking and saying that the threat is to be cut off from me? Do you see, though, that the beauty of Christianity, that Jesus looks and goes, and guess what? I am going to be cut off for you so that you can deal with with the things in your life because I'm going to ensure because of what I did on the cross that you will never lack a resource that comes from me of grace every time you repent. I feel pretty unproductive. Do you? Because if you do, Jesus is opening up a doorway of repentance. Come back home. Resume the posture that you began in Christianity. You began it totally by grace. You started it if it was only his efforts alone and not your efforts. Come back. Repent. In other words, begin to see what real faith in me is actually like. I have a lot of students who look at me and they say to themselves, all right, so what does that mean? <laughs> what do I do? I mean, should I, should I pray a prayer when I'm becoming, coming to faith? And my answer is, yeah. <laughs> pray lots of prayers. <laughs> Paul says to pray without ceasing. Okay, well, I mean, should I read my Bible more and do it? Yes, yes, absolutely. Hear from God on a regular basis. All right, should I join a church and plug in with the rest of a community of faith? Yes, it's going to be vital for you to hold you accountable and to keep you encouraged. Okay, should I start giving copious amounts of my money away to people who need it so that I can help? Yes, absolutely. In other words, all of those things are what we call means of grace not the ends of grace and suddenly through the eyes of faith they are set in their proper context are they not and we learn to live a life that ultimately is walking with Jesus that is what it means to abide in him and him in us so that we would produce more much fruit it is my prayer that for myself and for my family for you for our students at Ole Miss, that God would make us to be a people that would be faithful and thereby produce much fruit. Let's pray. Then, Lord Jesus, if that's going to happen, it's going to be because you did something. We know ourselves well enough to know that even our prayer right now is so fraught with bad motives that you would have every right to judge us for the best prayer we ever prayed that even our repentance needs to be repented of. And so, Lord Jesus, would you give us a posture of grace, 
a posture that looks to you as if you are the only thing that can truly work in us. And maybe in so doing, you will teach us what it means to abide in you, that we might see you as being a love that will not let us go, a love divine, all loves excelling. And that maybe as we sing those very words to you this morning, we might be renewed freshly with the way in which you have loved us. Would you do that? For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Hymn number 529, verses 1 through 4 is Love Divine. Let's stand and sing our closing hymn.